1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. who is the coordinator for counterterrorism at the U.S. State Department, before joining the State Department, is it a tenured professor... Uh, and counterterrorism law, national security law, and constitutional law, and administrative State. law. It was, it was Brown, right? Is it Brown? Yeah. I've been around. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, before that, he was the deputy assistant secretary for uh, policy yeah. of the Department of Homeland Security, and he also they served like in the Office of, of Legal Policy of the Department of Justice. Yeah. So, uh, please join with me in welcoming Ambassador Wells.
0: Thanks, Jim, very much for that warm introduction. It's a real pleasure to be back here at Heritage. Um, I'd like to thank Heritage for hosting me it's today nice. and thank all of you for joining us for this presentation. Today I'd like to tell you about one of the most effective tools we have to keep terrorists from entering our country, the Visa Waiver Program, or VWP. Now that may sound like a paradox. How could we visas ever be good for counterterrorism? In fact, the Visa Waiver Program is the gold standard for international security cooperation. It helps us push our borders out. The Visa Waiver Program enables us to identify terrorists attempting to travel here and stop them long before they reach our shores. The reason that's the case is because visa-free travel doesn't mean vetting free travel. In fact, it's the opposite. As a condition of membership, our partners are required to share valuable information that strengthens our national security. Things like terrorist watch lists, as well as criminals' fingerprints. They invest in sophisticated border technology, they upgrade their passport security programs, and they amend their counterterrorism laws to address emerging terrorist threats. In short, we're all safer with the visa waiver program than we would be without it. I'll start my speech this afternoon with a quick overview of the persistent problem of terrorist travel. Then I'll highlight for you some of the most significant security features of the Visa Waiver Program. And finally, I'll conclude by saying a few words about the future of the program. Let me start with a problem. Our terrorist enemies have global ambitions, which means they seek to travel across the globe, whether they aim to strike their so-called far enemy or to establish a so-called caliphate, terrorists depend on travel to move money, to move weapons, and to move fighters. We know that terrorists are continually probing for weaknesses in our borders. In 2001, shoe bomber Richard Reed attempted to detonate explosives aboard a plane flying from Paris to Miami. A few years later, in 2006, terrorists planned to use explosives disguised as sports drinks to bring down a half dozen flights from the UK. And on Christmas Day 2009, Umar Farouk Abdulmutallab tried to destroy a flight from Amsterdam by detonating a bomb hidden in his underwear. The rise of ISIS saw a surge of foreign terrorist fighters crossing international borders for the war zone in Syria and Iraq. Some 40,000 FTFs are believed to have traveled to the war zone, a number that includes about 5,000 from Europe. We are now on the verge of eliminating the remnants of the false caliphate in Syria. But that doesn't mean the ISIS threat itself has been eliminated. The group's leadership and foot soldiers alike see this as a setback, not a defeat. They're actively working to continue the fight from their elaborate network of branches and affiliates around the world. ISIS, of course, is not the only terrorist threat that we must confront. Al-Qaeda is rebuilding and maintains its desire, both its capability and its intent, to attack our homeland as well as our interests overseas. Then there's Iran, which remains the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Tehran's terrorist proxies have a truly global reach, in particular Hezbollah, which continues to target the United States, our allies, and our interests around the world. That means that combating terrorist travel will continue to be a top priority for the Trump administration. Indeed, some 1,200 ISIS fighters have already returned home to Europe. Hezbollah operatives likewise have been arrested across Latin America and elsewhere around the world. And our Asian and Pacific partners are also dealing with hundreds of terrorists who've traveled back to Southeast Asia from the Middle East. Stopping this travel requires continuing vigilance to prevent terrorists from exploiting our immigration systems, including the visa waiver program. Let me say a few words now about the visa waiver program and how it enhances our national security. The program's economic benefits are well known. In 2017, the United States welcomed more than 22.6 million visitors under the program. While they were here, they collectively spent more than $94 billion in our country. On average, visa waiver travelers spend 44% more during a trip to the United States than other travelers do. But in today's threat environment, economics alone aren't enough to justify the visa waiver program. We also need to know that the program is secure. Fortunately, it passes that test with flying colors. The criteria for membership in the VWP are fairly straightforward. A country must achieve a non-immigrant visa refusal rate that's lower than 3%. That's very wonky. So let me explain what that means in layman's terms. What that means is that consular officers have to assess that there's a low risk that citizens of this country might overstay their visas if they come to the United States. In addition, members of the program also have to implement a number of tough, real security measures to combat terrorist travel. DHS is responsible for ensuring that countries meet the VWP's strict security criteria. And the State Department's Counterterrorism Bureau, which I lead, plays a key role in ensuring that the VWP is helping to secure our homeland and keep our citizens safe. Let me say a few words about five key security requirements in the program. First, there's the Electronic System for Travel Authorization, or ESTA. Citizens of visa waiver countries apply online before boarding their plane or ship to the United States. DHS then takes that data and screens it to determine if these travelers might pose a threat. If their ESTA is denied, they must apply for a visa at a U.S. embassy or a consulate. This vetting works because of a second visa waiver program requirement. It gives us unprecedented access to other countries' terrorism-related data. One of the lessons we learned on 9-11 was the need to tear down the walls that kept officials within governments and among governments from communicating with one another. We can't allow ourselves to forget that lesson today. Under the Visa Waiver Program, member states must provide us with their watch lists of known and suspected terrorists. They also have to share information about serious criminals, including their fingerprints and other biometrics. In addition, since 2017, Visa waiver members have been required to screen travelers arriving in their countries against US watch lists. They also have to notify us about any encounters they experience with watchlisted terrorists. This requirement dramatically expands our awareness of global terrorist travel and makes it harder for terrorists to move elsewhere around the world. We can think of it as a global neighborhood watch where everyone's looking out for emerging terrorist threats. Third, we've leveraged Interpol's capabilities to improve the security of the visa waiver program. BWP partners are required to report lost or stolen passports within 24 hours, either directly to the United States or through Interpol. This helps us spot terrorists trying to travel on forged documents. In fact, visa waiver countries are responsible for more than 70% of the 84.5 million records in Interpol's database of lost and stolen travel documents. We also recently began requiring member countries to report foreign terrorist fighter identities directly to Interpol and Europol and similar organizations. When our partners, and also non-visa-waiver countries, screen against these databases, it makes it that much harder for terrorists to move about the world freely. Fourth, the Visa Waiver Program helps us spot unknown terrorists, the ones trying to hide in plain sight. The Visa Waiver Program's intensive information sharing requirements enable us to stop travelers who've been watchlisted, the known threats. But we need to do more if we're going to stop terrorists who so far have managed to evade notice. To help flag these previously unidentified threats, we've called on our Visa Waiver Program partners to analyze passenger name record data, or PNR. PNR is essentially the information you give to an airline when you book a ticket. It generally includes your itinerary, your contact information, such as phone number or email address, and other data. The United States began using PNR all the way back in 1992, and in 2002, Congress made it mandatory for all flights to or from the United States. We made it a requirement for visa waiver member countries in 2015. PNR is one of the most valuable weapons in our counterterrorism arsenal because it enables us to draw connections between known terrorists and their unknown associates. This technique is known as link analysis. If a traveler has booked a ticket using the same cell phone number as, say, the underwear bomber, uh, that, problem, that person probably deserves a closer look at the airport than your average traveler. In fact, if investigators had applied basic link analysis techniques to airline reservation data and other data, It would have been possible for them to identify the hidden connections among all 19 of the 9-11 hijackers. We can also use PNR to spot potential terrorists based on their travel patterns. We can tell if a traveler flies with a companion who's named on a watch list. We can tell if a passenger's current itinerary differs from their previous itineraries. We can also tell if a traveler is taking odd or suspicious routings to get from point A to point B. Fifth, the visa waiver program isn't just about sharing threat information or screening travelers. It also enables DHS to evaluate our partners' border security and passport facilities, which we normally wouldn't get from countries subject to normal visa-based travel. DHS experts regularly visit visa waiver countries to inspect airport security, see how border officials screen travelers, visit refugee processing facilities, and check that government offices are using passports, issuing passports to genuine applicants. No other program enables us to conduct such sweeping and comprehensive and consequential assessments of another country's civilian security operations. The question then becomes, why are member states willing to live up to these strict security requirements? Well, part of the answer is, like the United States, they take seriously the threat of terrorist travel Um, and are resolved to do what they can to combat it. But there's something else going on here. Part of the reason is because the benefits of visa-free travel are worth it to these countries. In short, the Visa Waiver Program is a carrot with which we can induce member states to live up to the very highest standards when it comes to national security. The Visa Waiver Program buys us data and it buys us cooperation that we otherwise wouldn't get. Because of the visa waiver program, we have more watch lists, we have more fingerprints, and we have more leverage. And therefore we have more security, both for us and for our partner states. So what comes next? Of course, the terrorist threat isn't static. Our adversaries are constantly adapting, and so the visa waiver program has to adapt as well to keep pace with the evolving terrorist threat landscape. Here at home, this process of analysis and improvement is continuous. DHS is now examining what additional safeguards Visa Waiver Program members should use to protect their airports against insider (coughs) threats. We're also continuing to strengthen our own security measures. In December, we launched the new National Vetting Center. This coordinated interagency effort provides a clearer picture of threats posed by travelers seeking to cross our borders. The National Vetting Center's first focus is on visa waiver travelers. Its analysis of the data from the online ESTA forms will give our border officials more timely and more comprehensive information that they need to make entry decisions. The National Vetting Center also provides a platform for future enhancements to the vetting process, allowing us to continue that process of evolution and adaptation to meet future threats. Looking beyond our own borders, The security tools we pioneered under the visa waiver program, things like ESTA, watch lists, biometrics, PNR, these tools are now global norms. We prove that they work here in the United States, and the rest of the world is now following our example. In, In December of 2017, the United Nations Security Council unanimously adopted a tough and landmark resolution on combating terrorist travel. Resolution 2396 requires all UN member states to use tools like watch lists and PNR um, in order to prevent terrorist travel. 2396 internationalizes American policies and practices. It's the most important resolution on terrorist travel that the UN has ever adopted. Similarly, across the pond, the European Union is now setting up its own ESTA like system. In future years, Americans and other visa-free travelers to Europe will have to provide biographic information via an online form before traveling to an EU country. The EU also now has its own PNR directive for screening travelers for potential terrorist threats. Going forward, we'll continue using the visa waiver program as a lever to induce other countries to embrace state-of-the-art border and travel security. For that reason, we're also open to welcoming new members that meet the program's strict security criteria. The VWP is one of several overlapping international counterterrorism frameworks that form the foundation of a more secure world. Along with organizations like Interpol and the Global Counterterrorism Forum, Visa Waiver Program partnerships help us set durable global counterterrorism norms. And we're able to spread those norms by transplanting these visa waiver program standards into other platforms like U.N. Security Council resolutions, as we saw in December of 2017. In conclusion, it can be tempting to make the lazy assumption that security necessarily competes with other national priorities. It's security versus prosperity, and if you expand one, that necessarily has to come at the cost of the other. Under the Visa Waiver Program, that is a false choice. We can and do have both. The program produces extraordinary economic benefits for the American people while simultaneously hardening our borders against terrorist travel. The risks posed by ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Iran-backed terrorist groups are significant and continuing. As the world grows smaller, the threat becomes greater. Strong and adaptable policy solutions like the VWP enable us and our allies to prevent terrorism in a way that also benefits our economies. We remain committed to making sure that our partners have the right tools and are using them effectively to stop terrorist travel, to improve border security, and to counter threats to the United States. Thanks for your time today. I look forward to our conversation.
1: everybody else in the conversation. So if you have a question, just kind of make the raise your hand and go, and then and we'll work folks in. And again, if um, if you do have a question, if you just wait to be recognized, and if you would uh, just state your name and affiliation um, and wait for the microphone, that would be great. So um, let, let's let's start with the Visa Waiver Program. I, I thought you did a, a really great job kind of laying out what the, what the benefits are and how the U.S. has leveraged that to improve... Our capacity to uh, defeat uh, terrorist travel. Uh, I, I don't know if a lot of folks realize that a lot of those innovations really came after 9/11 um, under the I, uh, the Bush the, administration, when, and when Secretary Chertoff was uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. So one of the things that facilitated that expansion was um, there was a, a change in the law, which which granted the administration some waiver authority. So there was a very low criteria to qualify for the visa waiver program. Uh, and it was based on on the visa refusal rate to your country. And so um, for a period, Congress gave the administration um, expanded authority to waive that up to 10% to say, if you had a refusal rate that was uh, under 10%, that you could bring it. And then and we brought in a number of countries at that point. And then subsequently that, a couple of years later, that, that authority expired. Um, and uh, so now we're kind of, uh, I think it's the 3% refusal rate in order to qualify. Um, looking at the value of the program, and, and I'm assuming that, that this administration doesn't have any interest in bringing back the waiver, in, uh, so what are the prospects for the continued expansion of the program to include other countries?
0: Uh, i I'd say they're pretty good um, for countries that are able to meet the criteria. There's immigration-related criteria as well as security-related criteria. Um, Admitting countries that meet the standards into the program uh, represents a a win-win. The United States benefits from uh, those uh, admittances because we are now able to um, propagate out to an additional partner the highest possible security standards. bringing with it various economic benefits and, and geopolitical benefits that, that stem from uh, you know, using visa waiver uh, to cement alliances and, and, and partnerships that have geopolitical significance. Um, for, for countries that are, are close to the 3 percent threshold, um, which, as you said, is uh, sort of firm and inflexible statutory mandate uh, as to which we have no discretion in the executive branch. Um, for, for countries that are uh, close to meeting the 3% threshold, um, I think the most important thing uh, that candidate countries could do is begin to take the necessary steps to position themselves uh, to implement the security requirements.
1: And so, I mean, so is it your uh, uh, impression that Countries continue to see value in joining this program, and so they they um, con- they're consciously working to reduce the overstays, reduce the refusal rate, um, meet the security requirements. So that 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 carrot, the carrot approach is actually continuing to work for the U.S. Is that fair? I think that's right. I think um, I think
0: countries do see a lot of value in joining the program. Um, there's the sort of. Well-known economic benefits. There's the uh, solidification of alliances and partnerships, um, and I think that incumbent members as well as aspiring countries all see those things as delivering real value.
1: And is it is it fair to say, because uh, I actually don't know the answer to this question, that that th- this administration um, uh, is um, <coughs> interested in other countries joining? Is that That the 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 goal is to have other countries meet the standard and join into the program that they see it as a growth of the program as something that is in the U.S. interest. Is that fair? We we
0: we want more security when it comes to international travel. Visa waiver is a very effective way of improving security, Um, and so you can read between the
1: lines. Okay. So um, so you know, for in um in in the debates we have, whereas you know maybe twenty years ago terrorist travel was at the forefront of everybody's mind today. Um, remarkably, uh, you know, the, we've actually done an incredible job combating terrorist travel. Um, and it's gotten successively, I think, better with each administration. And um, one of the things that we do at Heritage is, is we have a database where we track Islamist-related terror plots against the United States since 9-11. And I can't remember the exact number, but now we're well over 100. But um, Consistently, I think, for uh, geez, it must seem almost like a decade now, virtually um, every plot that's been uncovered is, is homegrown. So we just don't have a track record of terrorists being able to use the normal means of kind of travel um, to get to, to the United States. So, um, and not surprisingly, I think uh, when you look at polls about what Americans are concerned and worried about today, uh, the threat of transnational terrorism is, is down. Um, and I don't think it's because of indifference. I think it's because they feel that we're, the government's doing a better job at that. On the other hand, um, uh, immigration and illegal immigration has is maybe one of the, the defining issues today, right? They've, they've absolutely kind of changed places in the last 20 years. And so when a lot of people look at not just visa waiver but essentially all... Uh, visa programs, either immigration or non-immigrant visas, um, there is a lot of concern. One, one of the, the, you know, the data points we constantly hear is is that uh, for all the attention that we pay to the border, that probably about half of the people unlawfully present in the United States came in with a, a valid visa and just overstayed. Um, so, I imagine when a lot of people hear about the visa waiver program expansion, that their concern is as well, what what are we seeing in terms of over visa overstay rates from visa waiver countries versus other countries is adding countries to the visa waiver program just, just that does that create a potential new fuel of, of illegal immigrants?
0: So um, let, let me address the, the first part of that question first which <coughs> is do we still have a problem when it comes to <coughs> terrorist travel? Um, I think absolutely yes. We've done a great job since 9/11 here in the United States uh, at reducing the risk of terrorist infiltration of the homeland. Um, but notice what verb I used. It's reducing, not eliminating. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want our audience to come away with the impression that we can check the box on this exercise and, and move on to the next problem, because the, the risk to the homeland of uh, terrorist travel uh, remains significant. Of course, the homegrown threat is, uh, is a real and growing one, um, but the threat from international terrorist organizations Uh, is is very real and we can't afford to let our guard down. Uh, In in many ways, the the threat landscape we face today is even more complex and difficult than the one we saw in the years running up to 9-11. The the principal transnational terrorist organization that we focused on before and certainly the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was was Al Qaeda. Um, But today we have not just Al Qaeda, which has been quiet, but that doesn't mean a surrender. Al Qaeda has been strategically patient over the past several years, but they retain the capability and the intent to carry out external operations targeting our homeland. To the Al Qaeda threat, we have to be mindful of the ISIS threat. Uh, And again, the physical caliphate is on its last legs, um, but that simply means we're moving into another stage of the fight, one in which um, a more decentralized threat network uh, is what we're going to be confronting. Um, and of course, the Iran-backed uh, network of terrorist threats that we face is also very significant. Um, we saw just within the past several months um, Tehran-directed plots in Europe to commit assassinations, to, to bomb a political rally. They actually carried out several assassinations uh, within the past couple of years. Um, the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, is funding and uh, enabling terrorist proxies Middle East and not just the Middle East. Hezbollah, the Lebanese-based terrorist organization, uh, has a (coughs) global scope. We have seen their operatives um, move money, uh, plant weapons caches, um, and engage in other operational activity on essentially every inhabited continent. Um, Those are threats to the United States as well Uh, because one thing that we know is that if terrorist organizations abroad enjoy something like safe haven that gives them the space they need to plan external operations um, and that's why terrorist travel uh, remains an important priority for the Trump administration
1: so um, since you are the coordinator for counterterrorism and uh, we've kind of shifted the conversation in in, in that direction um, let's uh, look at a couple other issues one as you mentioned in your in your remarks one of the 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 issues of concern of the day is is foreign fighters. We had tens of thousands of, of foreign fighters flow into the caliphate, literally from all over the world. Uh, and um, the the question is is where are they now and what are they doing? I, I remember when we were working on the, the presidential transition and and the, the president's executive order on the travel ban was kind of largely kind of pitched as as this was some kind of um, measure to you know, to punish countries because they were Muslim countries. The reality was, is what the administration was thinking about is the just the practicality is as the caliphate collapsed, those foreign fighters were going to go somewhere. And and the focus really was identifying the countries that they were most likely to flee to because the assumption was that they would flee there and they wouldn't just stay there. From there they might travel to try to come to the United States or Western Europe. And actually I think we've seen some cases of that um, in – In the last couple of months, so so, could you kind of give us an update on where we are in dealing with this issue of concern of the foreign fighters essentially kind of escaping the net and trying to sustain ISIS or Al Qaeda 2.0 or whatever by you know you know spreading out the footprint, but also trying to demonstrate that these guys are back in the game by trying to get to the West or the United States and find places to attack to show that they're still forced to be reckoned with. So um, if there's 40,000, give or take,
0: what, what happened to them all? Um, well, some of them have been taken off the battlefield. Uh, some of them are still fighting to this day. Um, in the last territorial holdings, it's reduced a postage stamp, essentially, in the middle Euphrates River Valley. Some of them have dispersed elsewhere in the region. Uh, some of them have gone back to their country of origin um, or to a third country. Um, you know, looking for whatever the next Syria is going to be, the next magnet to attract um, you know, global jihadis to the to the fight. Um, the, the risk of battle-hardened terrorists returning home or to a third country to carry out attacks is not just a hypothetical one. It, it's something that we've actually seen. Uh, this is the story of the Paris attacks in 2015. This is the story of the Brussels attacks in 2016, um, in which you had fighters who had gained battlefield experience in Syria and Iraq, um, exploiting refugee flows to uh, uh, deliver operatives um, right into the heart of, of Western capitals and carry out um, some of the worst acts of terrorism that Europe had seen in history. So um, we, we are very mindful of, of this threat of returning FTS. One of the things we're doing to address it is using some of the terrorist travel tools, counter-terrorist travel tools that we have discussed, to boost countries' capabilities to detect these folks. Let me tell you about a couple other things we're doing. Our soldiers in Syria and Iraq are hoovering up an extraordinary amount of data from captured enemies, from safe houses that have been abandoned, uh, from other enemy, enemy material that they encountered during operational activities. Uh, That is a treasure trove of information that we can use. Um, Battlefield evidence is a treasure trove of information that we can use for a whole host of purposes. We can use it as evidence in criminal prosecutions. We can use it to um, flag people who might be put on a watch list. We can use it to develop targeting rules for our intelligence analysts. Um, to better predict which patterns are associated with uh, a suspicious behavior and flag those folks uh, when they attempt to cross the border, when they land at JFK. We can also share this information, and we, we are sharing this information with our partners um, so that they have the same capabilities to detect and stop travel that that we uh, have, have developed. A, a final thing that I would highlight is uh, there's about a thousand or so foreign terrorist fighters currently held by the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, they've been taken off the battlefield and they're now held in a variety of facilities in Syria. These folks need to go back to their countries of origin and stand trial for the crimes they've committed. Um, it's no longer an acceptable solution to leave these folks on the battlefield and hope for the best. We hope that the SDF continues to detain them. We hope the regime doesn't take over the portion of the, the country in which these detainees are held. Now, the g- criminal law is an effective counterterrorism tool. And the United States calls on our partners to repatriate their citizens uh, and, and prosecute them for crimes they've committed so they're not able to ever return to the battlefield.
1: Thanks. And again, if you have a question, just raise your I have a few more questions I want to get on the table, but thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll, we'll come to your questions just, just in just a minute. So just maybe two more questions. One is, OK, we've talked about the foreign fighters and the threat of you know, them coming back here. Um, what can you tell us about the, the, the ones who are just going to ground in the region? You know, we used to have the dollar a day Taliban, right? I'm a Taliban, and then, you know, tomorrow I go back and I'd be a farmer, and then you come back, you be another a dollar, I'm a Taliban again. So we have uh, folks going back in Iraq, going back to villages, or, or going and hiding in the villages, hiding these other places, just, you know, kind of waiting for the opportunity to come back. So now we hear a lot of discussions about, okay, the caliphate has gone, but we're worried about ISIS 2.0. Uh, we're worried about Al-Qaeda 3.0. We're worried about an Iraqi government that, that doesn't seem to be really kind of moving forward uh, in terms of, of dealing with sectarian issues, and that creates a possibility for new fissures, which might allow them to come back. We worry about what does the Syria final footprint finally look like, and are there places where they can rise up again there? We always worry about the, the stability of Jordan, which is more refugees in this country than, than people. Um, then we, have, we also have Yemen and other places. Um, so in a sense... You know, it's kind of like the forest fire where the fire has gone out and then the, the guys walk away And then the wind kicks up and the, the, the flame kicks up again. So what how concerned are you with kind of a regional? return of an Isis 2.0 or an Al-Qaeda 3.0 and What what, where is, what is the US doing to, to deal with that? So maybe a threat assessment and then kind of what are the mitigating measures?
0: Yes, yeah, so um, the, the, the threat is very real Um ISIS fighters have gone to ground. Uh, some of them have stayed in the region, um, binding their time to see what comes next after the final defeat of their uh, so-called caliphate. Um, it's a very, it's an enormously complex problem um, that requires a full spectrum of <coughs> responses. So let me answer this at a high level of generality. You know, the, the end state that we want to achieve in the region is, one in which um, ultimately uh, ISIS is defeated, but subsidiarily, um, and most importantly, ISIS remnants lack the capacity, uh, lack the safe haven or sanctuary that would give them the capacity to conduct external operations. one or two guys pops up here and there, there are ways of dealing with that, kinetic and otherwise. Um, But what has to be avoided uh, above all else is a a reconstitution, even in a small way, uh, of a a physical so-called caliphate. Safe haven is what has to be avoided above all else. How do you accomplish that? Well, you use all the tools of of national power, Uh, kinetic, diplomatic, uh, intelligence, um, um, capacity building, law enforcement, and so on.
1: So one more question, and we'll go to our audience. one of the the criticisms that the last administration got um, as it was winding down um, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan was uh, and, and you know shying away from the term of conducting a global war on terrorism, was you know, what are you doing about the global threat? Uh, and, and what are you doing about the homegrown threat? Right? And so the administration embraced a concept that they called um, combating violent extremism. Um, which was then essentially, I guess, to get at the precursor or, you know, either the, if you wanted the, if you're a root cause guy, the root cause of terrorism, or the to catch people before they became, transitioned from just being extremists into adapting terrorist activity. And so that entailed, you know, funding some programs domestically, a lot of conferences, some, funding some programs overseas. So I know when the new administration came in, one of their uh, priorities was to kind of review what that effort was and what value or, or non-value was in there and kind of put their own stamp on what they think really needed to be done beyond kind of the, the traditional hardcore combating of active terrorist threats. So can you update us on what's happened to CVE under this administration and where where they're going from there? For sure. You? So, so
0: um, CVE is an important counterterrorism tool. We have a number of tools in the toolkit. Um, drones, at the one, on the one hand, prosecutors on another, financial regulators that cut off a flow of money. Um, and then there's this uh, category of counterterrorism activity that um, we know as CVE, or countering violent extremism. I, I think this administration is putting its stamp on that enterprise by emphasizing things like counter-messaging, uh, counter-narratives, and um, sort of hearts and minds. Um, one of the most effective ways to dissuade uh, populations that otherwise are at risk of radicalization is to expose them to the stories told by ISIS defectors, uh, people who went to Syria, who went to Iraq, expecting to find paradise on earth and found mass graves uh, and depravity. Um, they, these uh, defectors, jaded jihadis, is a term you'll sometimes hear thrown around, um, can be powerful antidotes to um, the radicalizing narratives that ISIS um, and its online presence seek to uh, propagate. One aspect of CVE that this administration has been less interested in is using uh, economic engagement or foreign assistance resources to address um, supposed economic causes of terrorism. we simply don't see the data uh, to support the notion that um, across the board, economic deprivation or uh, absence of economic opportunities is an important contributor to radicalization. Um, let me give you one example. In, in, in one part of the world, um, we were funding some programs, this is before I got here, so don't blame me. Um, we were funding some programs that were designed to uh, stimulate economic growth and uh, development in rural parts of the of the country. And the hypothesis was, if these folks have jobs, then they'll be employed and not um, uh, deploying to Syria or Iraq. Um, there was no data to support the hypothesis. And in fact, uh, the data that existed undercut the hypothesis because we found um, that in this country, the people who were most likely to uh, uproot themselves and travel to Syria and Iraq and take up arms for ISIS tended to be folks with better economic prospects, uh, higher education, um, and generally higher uh, socioeconomic status. Um, I think we need to be uh, focusing very carefully on what the data, what the academic research tells us about uh, underlying causes of radicalization leading to terrorism, um, and not simply take mental shortcuts uh, and make hypotheses, sorry, make policy choices based on hypotheses that are not borne out by data.
1: Great. So we're going to have a couple of questions now, front. We'll start here in the middle, with this gentleman, and then the young lady Biden. Um, and again, if you would just state your name and affiliation, ask your question. Uh, thank you very much for hosting this important issue. And uh, my name is Kawa Heather. I am from Kurdistan 24. Um, Mr. Ambassador, you know that uh, the Kurdish, uh, Kurdistan government, the uh, original government, is considered as a big source of tracking records.
0: And ...by the regime, and the Russians has been hauled off, uh, but the Russians have been pressing Turkey to do more, to separate the terrorist elements inside Idlib. So uh, what, what? how much is the U.S. Is concerned about a possible operation by the Russians and um, Idlib... Um,
1: if we consider that the higher uh, al sham elements are there, and that could also, you know, spark a new wave of immigration into Turkey as well. Thank you. So, two questions on Syria. Why don't you just hand the microphone to the gentleman? Sure. So, good. So, um,
0: first question. I, I don't have any updates for you. We um, we, we are uh, in conversations with our you NATO know, ally, Turkey, um, and uh, looking for a mutually beneficial path forward um, on Idlib. Uh, the United States is very concerned about the terrorist threat that, that um, is present in Idlib. Um, there are uh, a number of uh, al-Qaeda-linked organizations um, that have enjoyed something like Safe Haven in Idlib for uh, a, a while now. Um, and so uh, the concerns that we have there uh, about, about al-Qaeda, uh, and not just al-Qaeda but other terrorist organizations, are, are, are very real. Um, and at the same time, we're also <coughs> mindful of Turkey's needs um, to avoid any kind of humanitarian crisis that would put a strain on uh, Turkey's borders uh, and tax Turkey's ability to respond adequately.
1: Sir? I'm uh, Peter i um, pre- intelligence and a former diplomat. I'm wondering a couple things. Uh, it's a, this is on the basis of reciprocity, right? That's
0: right. You mean visa waiver?
1: Yeah. Yes. And um, have we ever dumped a country?
0: Yep.
1: Yep. Can you name it?
0: Um, I believe in 2001, Argentina was removed from the program uh, because of concerns surrounding the financial crisis at the time.
1: And um, can you name maybe five countries that are, are close to being on board?
0: um I would instead focus on the criteria um, because it's an objective test right countries that meet the standards are eligible countries that don't aren't so it's the three percent visa refusal rate um, the issue machine readable passports and various other uh, security measures that we that we covered during the speech
1: so so a pending member is a secret is that correct
0: um it's not classified, but I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> are there are, there, there are
1: any Muslim-majority entities uh, we're thinking about? Maybe Turkey would be the first? Brunei's in. Oh, Brunei. Yeah. Okay, very good, thank you. Okay, let's just hand
0: the mic. And then we'll go Yeah, please. Hi, I'm Neil Shabon, the American Legion, and my question is, I kind of got overshadowed before in one of your answers, but um, visa overstays, again, is like accounting for roughly half of the, the illegal immigrant population in the U.S. So what is the plan moving forward to address that, as well as um, beyond the visa uh, program, what is on the horizon for the State Department, DHS, et cetera, for in terms of combating travel? So I understand the program, the waiver program, is in place, but there's obviously something. You're always thinking about the next thing, and I'm kind of wondering what's like in your scope. Yeah, so those are my two questions. So, first question, uh, I'm not going to answer that one either um, (laughs) because I'm going to defer to DHS, which is responsible for um, enforcing immigration laws. And I wouldn't have anything to add beyond what what they have said or could say. It is
1: fair to say that the visa waiver countries have a lower overstay rate than Than other. Uh,
0: I don't have the data in front of me. They they do. One can imagine a theory as to why that would be the case, but I I just don't have the data to be able to answer conclusively. As far as what else are we doing about travel, um, I could give you another two-hour lecture on that. But uh, rather than subjecting a patient audience to that, let me just tell you about one thing that we're doing, Um, and it's another example of the United States internationalizing American policies and practices. So in. I mentioned Resolution 2396. One of the most important parts of the most important resolution on terrorist travel is the mandate that all UN members develop and use their own passenger name record systems to analyze airline reservation data. Well, it's great to legislate that, as the UN has done, but you don't get the benefit of the system unless the system is actually developed and implemented and used. So what the United States is doing now is uh, looking along a number of different axes uh, to develop um, the capabilities of other countries to implement those systems. So, we have a system called ATSG, the Automated Targeting System Global, that the United States has offered to make available to any country that wants it. Uh, The Dutch, you know I couldn't mention ATSG without mentioning TRIP. Uh, The Dutch have their own system uh, called TRIP, which they have made available through the UN to any country that that wants to adopt it. Um, So that's one track that we're pursuing. Another track we're pursuing uh, concerns ICAO, um, the uh, UN's body for addressing uh, civil aviation. Um, We have called on ICAO to adopt a so-called standard. It's a technical term in ICAO parlance. Um, We've called on ICAO to adopt a standard for PNR uh, and do so expeditiously by the end of 2019. That basically gives countries a policy roadmap for what they should do when constructing their own legal framework um, and systems to do airline reservation data analysis. How long do you keep it? What (coughs) systems do you have in place to prevent the data from being improperly accessed, both for security reasons and because of privacy concerns? Um, what are the purposes for which you collect it? With whom will you share it? All, all of those different menus of policy options. Um, we're asking a, a ICAO to develop a template so that countries that have the will to act
1: can do so, even if they don't have the policy expertise yet. Thank you. Great. So let's um, go back to the, the visa overstay uh, issue for a second, because I know one challenge that the administration w- was looking at when it came in is one of the challenges of overstays is. is when you want to deport people, but countries won't take them back, because it's a you know, whether they're a citizen or whatever. And there was, a, you know, a list of some countries who were worse than others. And I know that's something the administration was looking at. Is, is that an area where you've made progress? I don't have
0: anything to report on that either. Um, I, I'll simply say one of the criteria for visa waiver membership, is, as, you, as you mentioned, is um, if somebody has violated our laws, especially if they're here the in a visa waiver status, um, then you have a reciprocal obligation to take them back. We, we extend uh, to visa waiver countries a benefit to the country's citizens, um, but that comes with certain expectations and conditions. And one of those is if you are here and you violate our rules and you are no longer eligible to be here, we expect the countries that enjoy the benefit of visa free status to comply with the rest of the program's requirements.
1: Yeah, and, and it is fair that that none of the countries that are kind of on the list of being recalcitrant
0: and taking our visa away from countries—that's fair. Um, there's 38 countries in the program. Yeah. I, I'd have to run through the whole list to be able to say conclusively, but I, I, I believe that that's pretty <laughs> sure that's right. Yes, sir. Ambassador, thank you for your time. Much love with uh, Free Muslim Center for De-radicalization. Uh, two quick questions: Do we also have the uh, access to the red flag list of these 38 countries of people who are? Potentially radicalized, or are we laying that responsibility to the country to vet who's supposed to come or who's not supposed to come? And so, it? I
1: think we'll do that question first. So, um,
0: under the visa waiver program, member countries are required to share with us their lists of known and suspected terrorists. Um, A known terrorist might be somebody who's committed an attack or written a check and therefore has been prosecuted and convicted for that crime. Uh, But the category of known or suspected terrorists can be broader than that, right? It could include people um, who are recruiters for ISIS um, or financiers for Al-Qaeda. It's not limited to people who have actually stood trial and been convicted. So it's a broader broader set. My second question actually follows up on that is, uh, is the counterterrorism that you're uh, focused
1: on, is it only to ISIS and Al-Qaeda affiliates, or could it be... Europeans who are far right, far left affiliates who are radicalized but not ISIS
0: affiliates. Right. So we, the, my mandate is to focus on uh, international terrorism that represents a threat to United States security. Um, the groups that tend to fit that bill are
1: your Al-Qaeda's, your ISIS's, your Hezbollah's. Any questions? Robin, um, so Robin Suncox is our our uh, uh, coordinator of our our, uh, transnational terrorism research at the Heritage Foundation. So, Robert, over to you. Thank you.
0: Just a quick question as a follow-up on the the CVE point. You um, mentioned your preference for the use of the kind of jaded jihadis as a possible counter-messaging tool, but you also referenced earlier on about the need for um, countries to take back fighters that have been held in SDF and prosecute them. So, the, out of those two, which would be your preference, because one may challenge the other? Uh, I don't see them as mutually exclusive, because the people that... When you, when you think about the FTFs who are in custody in Syria right now, uh, I'm not sure how many of them are remorseful. Um, there are people that we took off the battlefield within the past 72 hours. Um, bitter enders... Fighting in the streets of the postage stamp they've got left are probably not going to be effective spokesmen for um, the brutality and uh, cruelty of, of ISIS. So I, I see the two um, <clears throat> streams as being complementary. Um, we, we want you to take back your prosecutors and, and sorry, take back your fighters and prosecute them. Uh, and for those who have been de-radicalized after serving their time, or maybe they didn't commit a crime in the first place, I'm not speaking about foreign fighters here, but, but, but other ISIS sympathizers. Uh, for those who can credibly explain uh, to a target audience, we want to amplify those voices. And, I, yes, sir, I think it'll be our
1: last question. Okay. Thank you very much. Mr. Kurt from Kurdistan TV. Uh, thank you for your time. What are differences between the U.S. and EU policy about the Iran? As you said, Iran not only sponsor of the terror. Iran did many of times in Europe. Look what happened for Iranian Kurdish leader in 1989, Dr. Qasem. For Dr. in 1992 in Berlin, Germany. For Shapur Bakhtiar in Paris. For Kazem Rajavi in Switzerland. Thank you. Well,
0: I don't think it will surprise anyone in this room to know that uh, to hear that the United States and Europe don't exactly see eye to eye on the JCPOA. Um, however, uh, we have a great deal of convergence, transatlantic convergence, on the question of iran back to terrorism. Um, I think that's an area where our interests align very nicely. I think it's an area where um, we can we can work very closely with our European allies set aside the nuclear question. Uh, we can all agree um, that no state should be able to plot assassinations in the heart of a European capital. We, we can all agree uh, that no state backed terrorist enterprise should be plotting to bomb a rally in the outskirts of Paris. Um, that I think is one area where there is very little daylight if any between um, East and West. Okay, so <coughs> last
1: question. What what keeps you up at night? My five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Please join me in thanking Ambassador